I want you to uh, grab your Bible, turn to uh, Acts chapter 9. This is our 20th week in the, the book of Acts, and as Todd kind of brought it to uh, the forefront this morning, we're a third of the way through. We got a ways to go yet, but we're a third of the way through. We're making great progress. So turn to Acts chapter 9. Now, if you know me at all, you know that uh, there's a couple things that I like. I love good food and good drink. There's, there's nothing like the taste of things. But uh, as one who watches the Food Network, uh, they always tell you that the first way that you taste something is by smell. And... Um, having had a chance to go home to uh, my parents' house last week, brought back a lot of memories because we had a chance to see my, uh, my grandmother. My grandmother is 90-something, and uh, she is in a nursing home. And walking into a nursing home, if you've ever walked in, it has a certain smell. Even if there's pot roast going on in the kitchen, the smells of a nursing home don't make the pot roast appetizing. Ugh, probably. But there's also, um, my grandmother loves to quilt. She loves to quilt, and she was in her 90s still making her last one, and she told us, Laura and I and the kids, that this is her last quilt. We at our home, I was given two. I was given one uh, when Grandma was pretty sure that I was never going to get married, and she gave me a quilt. And then later on when I got married, surprisingly, she gave me another quilt. I'm the only grandkid that's received two. But as Grandma went into her closet to show us all her stuff, she opened it and there was a, a smell. And it wasn't your nursing home smell. It was the smell of mothballs. Awful smell. I know it keeps, supposedly keeps moths away, but the smell of mothballs is one of those most repulsive kind of smells. This morning, we are going to be talking about uh, how God has called us all to be in service to him, but that there are some Christians, and maybe even here, in, here today, who are kind of in this mothball reserve, where we're kind of being preserved, we're kind of staling, we got a, there's nothing aromatic about us, we're just maintaining. So if, read along with me in Acts chapter 9, as we look at the life of Saul, Saul, starting at verse um, 19, the second half of 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who, were call, who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down 
through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Mothballs. Even the United States uh, Navy has over 700 ships in what is called its mothball reserve. 700 ships. These vessels are anchored in harbors and little nooks and crannies all over the country to receive regular maintenance in, in order to prevent rust. But they're just sitting there. They're, they're doing nothing, even though they require a lot of money and effort to maintain them. They're just sitting there. Just sitting there. I watch YouTube videos of these, these huge, gigantic areas that are just covered with carriers, gunships that are just rusting in the water. Just recently, they even brought the, the USS Iowa the last of the great battleships, of course, from where? Iowa. And what did they do? They took it out of mothball reserves and made it a museum, a place where people could just walk around and see history. If you ask any pastor and about their, their, some of their greatest frustrations in ministry, you will see that they're you'll hear repeatedly some of their greatest frustrations are mothball Christians. Mothball Christians in the church, they just sit kind of harbored in their spot, sit anchored there, just enjoying their seat week after week. You may even know, and I noticed this as a kid growing up, these mothball Christians have their seat reserved, even though nobody even knows it's their seat. That is their spot. They sit there week after week. They require a tremendous amount of maintenance, especially when they have a problem or a need. But they're not really doing anything to serve the Lord. Pastors kind of call this the 80-20 the rule, where 20% of the people are doing how much? 80% of the work within the church. But this should not be so. This, this should not be the case for any church. This should not be the case for Christians in general. If Christ has saved you from your sins, then out of love, out of gratitude, out of worship, you should be zealous to serve Him. If He has taken you out of the miry clay, put your feet up on solid ground, saved you from your sins, out of love, out of appreciation, out of gratitude, out of worship, your life should be one of deep service 
lasting service for him. Even Jesus himself said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, to, to serve. And how did he do it? He gave his, ran, his life as a ransom for many. He gave his, his all, his complete life. So if we're going to grow to be like Jesus, our focus in life should be to serve him, to give of ourselves. Immediately after uh, Saul's dramatic conversion, after his conversion, Luke tells us of his initial efforts of serving the Lord. Luke wants us to see that Saul's conversion was genuine. It was real. The persecutors were quickly, uh, very quickly become the persecuted. And it's all because of his bold proclamation of the gospel. But Saul is not a special case. He's not one that we go, oh, well, you know what? He's one of God's special people who are called to reach out to the Gentiles. You know, that is a special case but I'm different. So this morning, this is going to be our theme for the morning. Our theme is this, that God wants all whom he has saved to serve him in whatever situations he puts them in. God wants all whom he has saved. Every person who he has saved, he wants all of us to serve him. In whatever situations, whatever place in life you may find yourself, to be serving him faithfully. If God has saved you, he wants you to be involved in ministry in some way. So before some of you go into uh, guilt mode, because some of us immediately, you hear sermons like this and you, you start going, man, I, I really am awful. Man, how can God love me? This is not one of the guilt. This is not the pastor, and I'm not going to pass around you know, a sign-up Sunday because that, that's not what this is. It's a reminder for us to be lives of worship, our entire lives of worship. That means serving the body locally, and it also means serving the, serving the church's purposes as we go out. But it may be that you are maybe a mother of small children that at this phase of life, at this phase of life, your primary ministry is to rear the kids that you have and show, have them come to know Jesus Christ. Maybe that is your primary ministry. And I'm not suggesting that you neglect, hear me, I'm not suggesting that you neglect your, your duties in your home just to work in the church. But then there's the other extreme. The other extreme is that there are some so cloistered in their families, so cloistered in their families, that they teach their children by example to be selfish and to disregard the need of serving Christ. Surely this is also wrong, isn't it? What I'm advocating is for us as a church, us as a family, to have an all-of-life ministry mindset. All of life. You hear it from me week in and week out. You hear it in the blessing that as you go, be a blessing to the communities wherever God has planted you. Go with a ministry mindset. Go. This is the kind of person that is always looking for how God 
wants to use him or her in whatever situation God has placed us in. We need, as Christians, to have a ministry mindset. If we've been saved by grace, we need to have a ministry mindset. So the Apostle Paul, early experiences in ministry, pictured this kind of life. And there's five lessons I want to point out this morning. And here's the first one. New believers, since we're talking about Saul being newly converted, new believers should immediately, immediately begin bearing witness about Jesus Christ. Immediately. Paul didn't sit around after his conversion experience, um, sit down in a coffee shop, sit down in his, his, his living room, his, his man cave, and just start thinking, huh, you know what? I'm kind of new at this. I better wait until I, I get everything together before I open my mouth. He, he didn't think about that in his man cave. He didn't, he didn't say, you know what? I'm going to look like an absolute fool After all, I came here to arrest the followers of Jesus Christ, and now I I want to proclaim Jesus. Man, I I don't want to look like a fool. People are going to start thinking that I'm absolutely unstable in my thinking. Or that I'm I'm kind of willy-nilly, you know, up and down with my, my convictions. Paul didn't think that. He didn't say, well, you know what? Damascus really isn't even my home. I'm just visiting here temporarily. Maybe I'll just wait until I get back. He didn't say any of these things. He didn't make up any excuses. He just started immediately. If you look at the text, immediately he did what? He started proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Immediately. Saul didn't have it all together at first. And it was implied in this first statement when it says that, but Saul increased all the more in strength. Saul was growing. His first time out of the gates, more than likely, he was stopped by the local rabbi and said, whoa, 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 hold on. Did you consider this, this, and this? And Paul goes, probably took a couple steps back and said, "Mm, yeah, what about that? How do I answer that? But our text shows that He was continuing to grow. He was increasing all the more in strength, in his knowledge of Christ. He was growing, but he did not wait. New believers, those who have been on the walk for a long time, we cannot wait to begin this ministry. The more he bore witness of Christ, the stronger he became. You see, You learn by doing, not just by head knowledge. You learn by doing. Of course, there's a certain amount of head knowledge that you you need to have, right? You would never want me to be your, your chief construction guy, ever. Because I lack a certain knowledge. But I'll tell you, as I do more of it, By my experimenting, by my failing, I'm growing and I'm becoming better. I still should never be a construction guy. But Saul, he was growing in his strength. There's no better way to learn than to get involved and to possibly even get nailed as you're doing it. The first time someone hits you with a question that you don't know the answer to, 
You should get motivated to get into the Word of God and find the answer. D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said this, If you don't go to work for the Lord because you're afraid of making mistakes, you'll probably make the greatest mistake of your life, that of doing nothing. Let me say it again. If you don't go to work for the Lord because you're afraid of making mistakes, you'll probably make the greatest mistake of your life, that of doing nothing and moving into the mothball reserve of the church. Until it all hits the fan, you just sit there. Until you need some maintenance, you just sit there. Because there's fear. So the question is, what do you say? How do you start? The answer is, how did, how did Paul start? What did he do? He spoke about Jesus Christ. That is his first thing. That's, that's how he started off. He spoke about Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him risen. He spoke about Jesus Christ constantly. You, you can look all throughout Paul's writings and you can see how he was doing. Even Jesus Christ Himself declaring that He is the Son of God. Jesus constantly in his life, just befuddled and angered the religious folks of the day, saying that he was, uh, the, the religious folks were angry with him because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God near the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus baited the Pharisees with the question of how the Messiah could both be David's son and David's Lord, implying that both his own sonship and deity we're living together. Jesus stated the uniqueness of his relationship with the Father, saying that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And at his trial, the high priest asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see me seated at the right hand of God the Father. I am. People need to know that Jesus is uniquely God's Son, one with the Father, and He cannot save sinners if He is just a great man. Jesus is the Son of God. And Saul also confounded the Jews by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Proving time and time again. He went back to Jerusalem. When he went back to Jerusalem, Saul took up with the Hellenistic Jews where Stephen had left off. Scripture was the basis for, for his argument. Scripture. F.F. Bruce, a great theologian and commentator, says the word proving means literally putting together. He was putting together the Old Testament promises and prophecies of the Messiah that was coming with the revelation of Jesus Christ. He put all these things together and they meshed. It implies that the prophetic scriptures were put alongside their fulfillment in order to prove that Jesus was the Messiah of whom they spoke. In this regard, Saul had a huge advantage over many new believers even in our culture in that he knew the Old Testament inside and out. Even as a young Jewish boy, one of the things that they did as young men was before the age of 12, 
they had the first five books of the Bible completely memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers. Have you ever read Numbers? Deuteronomy. Those first five books, the Torah, were memorized. And Paul was also discipled by Gamaliel, a very well-known uh, teacher, rabbi in his days. So he had a huge advantage. But that should only motivate us, shouldn't it? Motivate us to just devour God's Word, to suck the marrow out of Scripture and let it feed us and motivate us and help us put things together so that we can make a defense with Scripture for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that He is God's anointed one. Every Christian Every Christian should be equipped to tell others about our Savior. Every Christian. The second thing that we learn in this uh, from Saul's life is that new believers should take time to deepen their roots with their Lord. Our roots need to go deep so that when the storms come, we can stand. Now, I'm not drawing this, this point directly from the text, but piecing together other scripture that is essential for us, understanding Saul's history right after his conversion. And you can see this in Galatians chapter 1, 15 through 18, where uh, Paul says that after his conversion, he did not immediately go back to Jerusalem with anyone, nor did he go up to Jerusalem to consult with the disciples. But it says here, during that time period, after his conversion, he went away to Arabia. And then he returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, he went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter and stayed with Peter for 15 days. And he also met James, the half-brother of Jesus. So since Hebrews, in, in that time, considered any part of a year as a year, Three years could have been as short as 14 months. So Paul's sojourn in Arabia must have taken place between Acts 9.22 and Acts 9.23. And the, the crazy thing is, is if you study Scripture and start looking at it, and you look at where is Arabia, Arabia is the same place, the same area that Moses went up on the mountain to receive what? The Ten Commandments, the law. So Paul took time to deepen his roots by even going back, taking a chance to, to breathe and go, Lord, what is it that you are teaching me? What did he do there? Well, we can kind of surmise, kind of piece together that he spent time just pouring over scriptures that he knew so well from his upbringing, but still this time examining them in fresh light of Jesus Christ and his conversion experience. Scriptures just came into technicolor as he's, he's ex going, okay, I was on the road to Damascus, to persecute the church, to bring them bound back, and I had an experience with Jesus Christ himself. He blinded me, made me incapable of even finding my way. I, I received my sight again. He spoke to me. He is the Christ. 
as I examine New Te- Old Testament scriptures, experience with Jesus Christ, it all became just alive. Technicolor. And we've got to note that although Saul's experience on the Damascus Road was very personal and emotionally traumatic, life-altering, life-changing, his faith has a strong doctrinal flavor to it. Strong doctrinal flavor to it. They say the thing today that that unites uh, people that are younger than me. I'm 42, so people who are younger than me. One thing that just unites them in their walk is experience and emotion. And experience and emotion are extremely, extremely important. And Paul went through quite an experience. But if you look in his epistles, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, they begin with a theological foundation before they move to practical selections. He did not write these things for seminary students to debate and struggle through, but for everyday Christians like you and me to live for Christ in our daily experience. Before you, before, if you go through the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and note the emphasis, note there the emphasis on having a strong foundation of doctrine. We see that this doctrinal emphasis in our text, in that he was able to confound and argue Scripture with these knowledgeable Jews. I I, I emphasize this, and I want you to hear this. I want to emphasize this because in our day, in our age, doctrine and theology tend to be despised among those claiming to be evangelical Christians. I just have this love relationship with Jesus. That's all I, that's all I need. Just this love, Jesus and me. And it's really sweet and it's really emotional. Especially if I start singing these songs and I'll just tear up. It's just this emotional thing. The reality is that we need a foundation, a theological, doctrinal foundation for knowing deeply. If you've been in any kind of relationship in your life, it's not just this gushy, mushy relationship with this person. It is about knowing deeply another person. Why, why they do what they do? What, what makes them tick? Why does he or she react this way or say these kind of things? Let's go to the very character of the person and see why and who and all this about them. And the same, and even more so, is true about our relationship with the Father. We need to have a deep, strong, theological, doctrinal foundation. Being able to give a solid definition of what is justification. Some of you are going, not a clue. What is sanctification? What is imputed righteousness? And does that have anything to do with my walk with Christ? Absolutely. It is absolutely critical for you understanding. What is the gospel? 
Just so you know, it's not four books in the Bible. Those are the good news, the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is critical that we have an absolutely solid understanding. Third thing that we learn here, that new believers should be prepared to face opposition and rejection. Often new believers naively, sadly, think that Jesus loves them. Since Jesus loves them, he'll protect them from all trials and and all hardship. Man, I, I, I love Jesus, and since he loves me, it is going to be just this beautiful walk along the beach, waves lapping up on the shore ever so gently. Oh, it is just beautiful. And I'm going to be protected from any storm that comes my way, including sickness, including any kind of uh, financial problems or job problems or marital problems. Oh, he's going to protect me from all those things. In fact, he's going to protect me from, you know, when I come and be a part of the church, it's just going to be this sweet, sweet, beautiful thing. So we've got to be prepared to face opposition and rejection from, from without, from outside. The Jews were absolutely dumbfounded. They were, they were perplexed by what had taken place with Saul. They, they, were, they were blown away. You see this here. Well, they, they say, is this not the man who, who made havoc in Jerusalem? Is this not the guy? And then after, what, do you, what do you start saying there? You start seeing that they, they sought to kill him. They were out to get him. Same thing happened. He met hostility with the Hellenistic Jews, who, the same group who had killed Stephen not long before. Some argue that uh, Saul was just, man, just insensitive or inept or just he had no uh, couth about him in his early attempts of evangelism, but I, I disagree because if you look carefully at verse 25, he had a group of disciples who responded favorably to his message. He did a great job. So this, this points out that the criteria for measuring success in evangelism is never how many respond, even though you're, you're going to see sometimes in, in the churches today, you're going to see pastors who say, man, a thousand people in these mega churches, a thousand people got baptized today. And we just say, man, how come that's not happening in our local congregation? Is that truly the criteria for success? Or is it that we give the gospel clearly out and without compromise? Clearly. In Acts twenty-two eighteen, the Lord himself appeared to Saul after his conversion and uh, told him that the Jews wouldn't even accept his testimony. So does that mean he's ineffective and hopeless? There's nothing wrong or unspiritual with a believer just even moving along to preserve his life and fleeing from hostile enemies. The point is, be prepared. Be prepared that not everybody will welcome your message. Not everybody will receive it. The gospel is an offense because it robs sinners, confronts sinners with their sin. 
and it robs them of any glory of their own salvation. Our job is to be faithful in presenting the message day in and day out and day in and day out and leave the results to God. Be faithful in presenting and trust God for the harvest. We've also got to be prepared to face opposition and rejection from within. Paul saw this. Tremendous amount of rejection. When he, when he came to Jerusalem, all the disciples, including the apostles, were terrified of him. And for good reason, right? Terrified. He was the very one that was out persecuting the church, bringing people back, breathing murderous threats, scared to death about this guy. They probably thought he was trying to infiltrate their their ranks, he was changing up his, his ways, his motives, his ways of doing things. So I am pretty sure that Saul felt pretty lonely and cut off from the body. Alone. Without family, without friends. New believers are often naive about their fellow Christians. They think, isn't it great to be a part of the family of God? And maybe you've had the same experience and as you've come to Christ or you've joined a new church. Man, isn't it just great? I love, I love the family of God and then you get to know them. There's no amens there because you're scared going, I'm, I'm part of the problem. The family of God is an absolutely messy place. The beautiful thing is that we are saved by grace and we have hope. But the family of God is a messy place. Constantly messy. Needing, needing to constantly be changed by the gospel. But what do we see? We see gossip. We see rivalry. We see lust. We see failure. We see, all, we see bitterness. We see issues just arising and bubbling within the church. And we go, how come this is taking place here? Because we are works in progress. And people who are saying, I need my Savior. The thing is, if we become disillusioned and we drop out of the family of God and we try to be lone rangers on our own and say, I don't need the church, I don't need the people, I just, I just need Jesus, the reality is, outside of the flock, you become easy prey for the devil. He's going, there's a lone one, I'll take that one. At some point, we don't know how, Barnabas, Bar, Barnabas, who's known as the son of encouragement, came along Saul. He came alongside him and listened to his testimony and was convinced that he was really a disciple of Christ. Saul, the great theologian of the New Testament, the primary author of the New Testament, had a Barnabas, an encourager. Which leads us to the fourth lesson. Mature believers should be quick to come alongside younger believers to encourage and accept their, their efforts in ministry. Quickly, mature believers need to come alongside younger believers. Not just new believers, young believers. And younger believers are younger in the faith, not necessarily younger chronologically. You can be new 
in the faith, younger in your faith, and be 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. And quickly, you need a mature believer. And then sometimes, honestly, the mature believer can be far younger than you. Because as a mature believer, you have a prize. You've got a foundation of Scripture. You've got personal experiences with Christ. And you can become that person's Barnabas. Here he takes Saul to the apostles, probably only Peter and James, according to to Galatians 1, and convinces them of Saul's testimony to be absolutely true. And a few years later, what do we see? Barnabas left the work in Antioch to do what? To look for Saul and to bring him there for help. These two were working together. All too often, older Christians, and I've experienced this in my own life, older Christians are quick to criticize younger Christians. Very quick. Treating them as if they should act like mature believers. You have kids, and it'd be like saying to uh, my, my bubba, Isaac's only five, and just saying, are you serious? Why are there Cheerios still on the living room floor? You know, you know, you know, we eat at the kitchen table. How long have you been around? Five years? I know the first couple of years you were on bottle and we were feeding you, but you should know by now. Come on. How many of you have teenagers? Randy? Teenagers. 16? Don't you know by now? You've been around 16 years? Okay, I'll cut you some slack. The first few years it was bottle fed and we fed you with a little rubber spoon. I got it, got it. But you're 16. How come, you don't get, how come you're not acting like me? Well, the Christian walk is a slow journey forward. Often two steps back, three steps forward. Two steps back, three steps forward. And it's a slow journey of growing. And older Christians have got to realize and remember their own walk with Christ is not this immediately just escalating straight to the sky and it's been nonstop joy and no problems whatsoever. But we've got to remember the journey is absolutely critical, and we are called as brothers and sisters to encourage each other, to come alongside. As I'm, as I'm looking at this, I, I don't have any statistics on how many younger believers get discouraged and drop out of the church because no one comes alongside to encourage them. But as a pastor, I, there are plenty of stats out there about why people drop out of the ministry. I've read that out of any given seminary graduating class, 20% will quit the ministry within five years. And the number one reason they leave is not because of low pay or moral problems. The number one reason they leave the ministry is the pressure of criticism. They don't have Barnabases. They don't have encouragers. The church, the family of God, needs to be the place where we come for encouragement. As we are growing, as we are walking, I I can look to Pete and say, man, I just need somebody to encourage. And I shouldn't expect it of him. It should just naturally come. And vice versa. It is absolutely critical 
to be encouragers. And here's the last one. Last point, last thing I've, I'm seeing in the text. All believers should use times of peace to build up one another in the Lord and to continue reaching out with the gospel. If you look at verse 31, it's a third of seven progress reports in, in Acts. And uh, let me just read it. And so the church through, throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It shows the, shows the church not just in Jerusalem, but now scattered throughout all of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria was enjoying peace and rest from persecution. It was a sweet time. People were scared. They were huddled in their homes. They were scared to talk about their faith out in the workplace because there was persecution that was going to happen. And they heard about this guy, Saul, who was coming from Jerusalem, who was coming after them to haul them back, to put them on trial. They were scared. There was, there was persecution that was taking place. But now there was peace. There was peace. And the, the amazing thing is, it was God who granted this peace to the church. One uh, commentator, his name is uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, called verse 31 a sad note. A sad note. So all the church had, had peace and was being built up. He said it was a sad note. Uh, because the tendency of the church to grow during those times is often small. When we have peaceful times, what do we do? For me, if I have a terrible week, it has been just hit left and right, up and down, nonstop, panic-stricken, fear of your own health, fear of this, and what about that? And what is the first thing I do? I am on that couch. I am resting. I'm not thinking. I'm vegging. And the same can be true of the church. And I acknowledge that danger. When the pressure is on, either through persecution or trials, we tend to walk more closely with the Lord. We are very much aware of our, our, such times of our need, in such times of our need for Him. And so we rely on Him in prayer. When there is trouble in the church, man, and things are just going crazy and it's painful, what do you see the church doing? We come together in prayer very quickly. In times of peace, very rarely. But when the pressure is off, the danger is that we will kick back and just coast. And that's even a fear for me as we've been mobile for, for years. For five years, we've been mobile, constantly setting up, tearing down, setting up, tearing down, moving road boxes in and out and figuring out the sound stuff and why are things different today? Where's this? And why did this break? And man, now we're in this place of we've got a home. We can just kick back, relax, breathe. But the reality is that we should use such rest periods for spiritual growth, both personally and corporately. We need to use these times just to say, okay, 
The time that I used to be doing these things is now time for me to study even more deeply in the Word so that when times of persecution or difficulty come, I am equipped. I am rooted. I am grounded. My theology backs me up. My understanding of God's character is so much more understandable and clear. And I can rest in that in those times of trial. It's beautiful to note that in this time of peace, the church did not just coast. And God didn't just say, you guys just take a breath, a breath of fresh air and just rest for a little bit, take it easy. I'm not going to bring anybody to you because you're not, you, you need a vacation period right now. I know how tired you are. Shh, just relax. Just relax. But what happened? The church continued to increase. Not only just increase, it wasn't addition. What did it say? It multiplied. It's like going from one service to two. Two services to, well, let's just multiply. Four. Four to, we don't even want to think about it right now, do we? Because we're going, our children's ministry can't handle it. Our greeters can't handle it. The building can't handle it. We, we can't handle it. It's just absolutely too much. So what do we do to prepare for those? We study. We search. We pray. We disciple. We encourage. We build one another up. We trust. And how did they do it? They walked in the fear of the Lord. They walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Our goal in our relationships with one another as believers should be to build one another up in Christ. The fear of the Lord is not at odds with His love and His grace. Paul instructs us to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and the spirit and to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. The word comfort refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the coming alongside us to help us. So whether it's a time of peace or persecution, we must daily, rely daily on the Holy Spirit as we seek to grow. As we seek to grow in Christ. So what does this mean? Like I said at the beginning, this is not a pastor's way of guilting you into a children's ministry, guilting you to become an elder, guilting you to become a deacon, guilting you to serve on the worship ministry even if you can't carry a, a note at all. It's not my way of saying, hey, I'm going to twist your arm to shovel the, the new parking lot that we have. That's not the purpose. My purpose in doing this is saying that, listen, we have been saved by grace. We've been saved by grace. It's nothing of your own work that you can boast. Nothing. You've been saved by grace. If you've been saved by grace, and it is truly a free gift from God, and you can recognize that your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, that He has forgiven you, He has taken your place from the wrath of God, He has become your substitute. All God's wrath was to be on you. And you could never handle it on your own. And you realize that is a gift of grace and mercy. As brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I implore you, 
respond in worship. As you have been given gifts at the moment of your conversion, use them to encourage brothers and sisters up in Christ, to build up the body. If you've got the gift of evangelism, use the gift of evangelism and use it boldly. If you have a a desire to just disciple people, use your gift. Don't wait for a program. Do it. If you have the gift of encouragement, There are some of you who are huge encouragers. Use your gifts to encourage the body. If you have a gift of discernment, being able to discern right and wrong and alongside the wisdom that God has given you, use it to help the body. If you you have a person who is amazingly gifted with your hands, a carpenter, if you are one who who loves to build and to tinker and to fix and change and do things, use those gifts for the glory of God. If you have the gift of teaching, use your gifts to teach, whether it be men or women or children. Or maybe God's calling you to be a pastor. Maybe God's calling you to be a missionary. Use your gifts for the glory of God. Serve as an act of God worship. If God can use one who is breathing murderous threats against the church, who says he is the chief of all sinners, and God uses him to spread the gospel throughout the world and adds ripple effects to New Lenox, Illinois, the same can be true with you. He can use you in powerful, mighty ways. Let's be a church of no excuses. Because we serve a mighty God. No more excuses. But I can't. No more. Done. Amen? Mm -mm. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.